0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Associate Professor Sarah Holland-Batt. Sarah is a poet and an academic based at QUT, as well as an aged care reform advocate. Sarah joined me to talk about the many issues surrounding the coronavirus outbreaks in Victorian aged care homes. These outbreaks have led to the early death of so many elderly Australians. We also talk about the ageism that's become even more apparent in Australian society. But I do want to welcome onto the show now Associate Professor Sarah Holland-Batt, who is a poet and she's based at QUT, which is a Queensland university, if any Victorians are unfamiliar. And Sarah is also an aged care reform advocate, and she's spoken widely about the issues within the aged care system. And um, of course, they've become all too clear and obvious to us in Victoria, in particular, when we've seen these major coronavirus outbreaks in aged care facilities, particularly the private facilities that are under the regulation of the federal government, not the state government. And of course, it has brought up so many issues. And it's also, I think, shocked a lot of people at the attitude that we've seen from some people, of course, not all people, but I certainly have been really shocked and surprised to hear people be dismissive of our elderly and to suggest that they were already going to die and that they were at the end of their life anyway. I'm just, I don't know, I can't find a word to say how disgusted I am with that kind of discussion because it's not true. It's patently untrue. So we're going to be talking about these systemic failings and also what needs to be done, what has been addressed so far and um, where we're at. And of course, we are still seeing deaths daily from aged care. And we even saw, as I said at the top of the show, at least 50 deaths that have been very much belatedly reported um, as of last Friday that had actually occurred in July and August. So we haven't actually had a real accurate picture of what has been happening in aged care up until recently when we've seen these delayed and very much unexpected figures come through. So I welcome Sarah Holland-Batt now. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now, it is a really shocking thing to hear some of these stories that have come out from aged care. And, of course, these aren't new stories either. I mean, there's a reason why we're having an Aged Care Royal Commission at the moment. And we have seen that interim report, which came out at the end of October last year, and of course, it still continues. And we've seen um, some discussions within this the hearing setting around whether the federal government had a coronavirus plan, an infection control plan, and whether they really put in appropriate measures to prevent outbreaks like the ones we've seen here in Victoria. Before we jump into that, I did want to set the scene and and ask you about your experience and your particular interest in advocacy in this area. Because I know it certainly has a a personal element for yourself and um, you've become, you know, a true expert in this area now for talking about it for a number of years. And I just wanted to hopefully understand what the reasons are behind your strong and passionate and very much admirable advocacy in this
1: sector. The, the short version of it is that my dad, uh, my dad was in aged care until he passed. He passed away this March, but he he was in aged care since of uh, twenty fifteen, and we really experienced as a family the full gamut of the ways the system can fail you. So, dad moved into aged care when he's he had Parkinson's since two thousand, so he had it for a very very long time before. Eventually, with deep reluctance, we had to move him into aged care because it was just dangerous to have him at home. Um, And his care needs became so acute that that it was really necessary um, to move him into residential aged care. And so uh, when we moved him in, we began noticing issues straight away, small issues, uh, things like, you know, his clothes not being clean. It wasn't clear whether he'd had a shower, things like that. It's stretching to quite major issues like the fact that his Parkinson's medication, uh, which has to be dispensed absolutely on the dot, uh, because it helps it helps people control their movements. So Parkinson's, as you as you probably know, you know results yeah. in difficulties walking and so forth. And so the, the the Parkinson's medication must be dispensed on the dot, and he wasn't getting it remotely on time, which meant that he was having you know real troughs and peaks of being able to move and not being able to walk or coordinate his movements properly. He broke a hip uh, because in part uh, of medication issues. And that 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 basically made him wheelchair bound. We then were subsequently notified. So, at all, at all stages, we were raising concerns, complaining, uh, trying to advocate for him, trying to improve the situation. We couldn't believe the kind of lapses that were occurring. Um, and then a whistleblower came forward, a woman who worked in the facility, uh, to tell us that a, that a carer who was on the night shift had been victimising Dad and had been deliberately pushing his wheelchair away from the bed so that he couldn't get up, had been verbally taunting him, had just been unbearably kind of cruel uh, and, you know, would leave him in bed in in soiled, uh, you know, in cotton pads for hours with the door shut and tell the other care staff that he was sleeping when he was awake and wanting a shower. So it was really, really sadistic, incredibly distressing uh, stuff. And I was completely incensed at that point. I went to the police, uh, I went to the regulator, I went to all of the kind of agencies that you're able to go to, because I'm, you know, young and resourceful, and I thought this is just outrageous. This can't, mm-hmm. this, you know, surely, surely the system will not stand for this. And then, as I tried to pursue it, at every point uh, that the system failed, Dad. And and that really uh, made me then ask sort of quite serious systemic questions about, well, if it can fail dad, is it failing other people? And of course it is. And so then I testified at the Royal Commission and subsequently, you know, have read the Royal Commission report, uh, have read many of the previous inquiries and reports that have been handed down. And the more that you learn about aged care, the the more infuriated you become. I mean, knowing what I know now, it is just an abject disgrace that in a country as prosperous, as well-off, as advanced as Australia, we have such a sort of barbaric uh, way of treating our elderly. It's just a total indictment, I think.
0: Yeah, it really is. And in terms of the Aged Care Royal Commission, it is ongoing. And we saw in terms of some of the kind of major milestones and pushback that we got from the federal government and also public servants around this issue of particularly the coronavirus outbreaks in aged care here in Victoria, we did see the council assisting Peter Rosen Saying that the Commonwealth Government didn't have a specific plan for aged care during the pandemic. Now, I know right. that infection control should be a really major priority in any aged care facility, given that things like gastroenteritis can be an outbreak that can be really very much deadly as well, and the flu, for example. So it's not a new thing to have infectious diseases go through aged care homes, but of course. One of the things that uh, that really struck me, given that I talk about UK politics a lot on this show, was that even back in April, we were talking about these major outbreaks in UK aged care facilities uh-huh. that were completely uh-huh. out of control. Massive amounts of death occurring in these aged care facilities. And to me, if you would have paid even a 1% of attention as a public servant in the health sphere, or as a politician, you would definitely be aware that you needed to do something to anticipate that this may happen in Australia. So I was kind of shocked to hear that, that we really didn't have a plan. From your perspective, being such a close observer and um, a strong advocate and, and understanding the complexities of this, do you think that's a fair criticism to say that there really wasn't a plan, there wasn't enough adequate preparation involved for something that we knew was coming because we saw it in Europe first?
1: Okay, so yes, uh, and I'm dismayed to report that I've actually read the two documents in full that the government has has put up as evidence of a plan. So there's two documents. There's one that's the overall healthcare sector plan, which only mentions aged care 21 times, in long lists of other things. So there's no section in that document. That's, that's just basically a national health care plan. So that's the first document. And then the second document is a, a document that's called the CDNA guidelines. Uh, and that document, which is the one that uh, the health minister, that the aged care minister, that the prime minister have, out, have been out there defending, uh, and Brendan Murphy also has been out there defending as evidence of a comprehensive plan, that is not a plan. That is a set of guidelines. It's called a set of guidelines and they're they're addressed to individual facility managers, uh, those guidelines, and they say things like, you must have adequate infection control, you must have an outbreak management plan in place. It doesn't have any... For four months, that document did not even have, under roles and responsibilities, it did not even have the federal government or the Department of Health listed as one of the entities, one of the one of the bodies, one of the arms of government that had any responsibilities. So in, in terms of called federal plan, um, I'm very unclear how a federal plan couldn't even have a role or responsibility for the federal government in it. That was a set of guidelines that were sent to individual facility managers who had to interpret them. So it was essentially just a, a piece of advice uh, sent to individual aged care providers. So there was no plan. And, you know, when we think about what was known internationally, uh, in February, in Washington in the United States, uh, outside Seattle, that was the first time that there was a major outbreak in an aged care home. Uh, Two thirds of the residents contracted the virus and 37 died. By early March, it was going through Italian aged care homes where scores were dying in, in homes. Uh, by towards the end of March, uh, we saw, you know, Belgium was calling in Médecins Sans Frontières into its nursing homes because they'd been completely abandoned, where they found, you know, pe- residents just uh, completely abandoned in their beds. By the end of March, Spain had had to send in its military uh, to, to help residents who'd been again left abandoned and dead. And that was March, OK? Mm. And the outbreaks in Victoria uh, didn't begin until early July. So, you know, we we, we knew this was coming in February, we saw it. In February, the effects that it had in, you know, in an aged care home uh, in the US. And then, in terms of what we've known progressively, you know, by the end of April, it was known that more than sixteen thousand aged care residents had died in Spanish nursing homes. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. By mid mid May, it was known that almost thirty thousand aged care residents had died in America. And, you know, 14,000 aged care residents had died in the UK. That's May. And the government, during these months, had a set of guidelines. It didn't have any kind of plan. It didn't have any compulsory infection control training. That was voluntary. Uh, and people were allowed to do it or not. And, you know, only, it turned out only 20% of the aged care workforce had done it. You know, no-one did this This uh, infection control training that the government put online and didn't make compulsory. The government didn't make mask-wearing compulsory. It basically had all of this time in which it could have come up with a comprehensive plan looking to these disastrous uh, examples overseas and and working out what needed to be done. And instead it did absolutely nothing. It issued providers some advice. That's that's the, the, the long and short of it is there was no plan. There was a set of advice sent to individual aged care managers, managers, essentially advising them to come up with their own plans. Gosh, it is really shocking to hear that, but also not that
0: surprising. And it reminded me that I was shocked to hear the federal government only mandated the use of masks on July the 13th and that's surgical masks, it's not even N95 masks. And of course, we all know that in hospitals now, the majority of doctors and nurses are using N95 masks in COVID wards. So, I mean, it is really so delayed and it wasn't even just delayed, it was too late. By the time that these major outbreaks occurred, we had to see the state government of Victoria transfer elderly residents into palliative care, and also yeah. other wards within their hospitals and even deny some people a bed in those wards. Yeah. And we've seen all these deaths. And I was looking at the statistics as of yesterday in Victoria and of the state's deaths, 532 have been linked yeah. to aged care. So, I mean, this is a, a major part of Victoria's coronavirus issue and it also sounds like not only have the residents and their families been distraught and residents have passed away. But we've also heard that this has been a major source of infection that spread throughout the community as well, because if you don't have infection control in a place like a hospital or an aged care facility, things within the community, they go out of the community and they go from the community back in. Mm, So I, I wondered from your perspective, hearing about and watching the death toll rise and it still is actually occurring. We've had eight deaths today. I don't know how many of them are from aged care, but you know, yesterday there were nine and they were all aged care. So what are your thoughts on Victoria and how It manages something where the federal responsibility for particularly private providers, where most of these um, outbreaks have been occurring, are a real challenge. And it seems like this delineation of
1: responsibilities has really led to a huge issue. Yeah, so I mean, underlying all of what you're saying, or first thing I would the first point I would make, and you, you sort of raised it, is is that Australia has a very, very high proportion of our COVID deaths are coming from aged care. Much higher, would you believe, even though the numbers in the USA and the UK, the total numbers are higher. In the US, the proportion of aged care deaths is only 42% of all of their COVID deaths are from aged care. In the UK, it's 40%. In Australia, it's 75% of all of our national deaths from COVID are occurring in aged care. So that tells you something quite significant about the way in which those citizens and, you know, they are human beings with equal rights to you or I, you know, are being exposed to it at a, at a rate that is so much greater than the general community. So in terms of the challenge um, of, the, of the response, Part of the reason uh, that the government has done so very little is because the sector has been progressively deregulated For about 20 years plus, since John Howard's 1997 Aged Care Act, the sector has supported... So these providers who are now being ravaged, uh, you know, their homes are being ravaged by COVID-19, many of those same providers have supported uh, lots and lots of measures to deregulate the sector, to remove federal oversight, uh, to reduce oversight. So in terms of why we're seeing such an uneven kind of response, why certain facilities seem better positioned to deal with it than others, why there's no kind of standardisation of training of responses is because of ultimately a kind of neoliberal philosophy that's infused aged care policy making, in which the idea is that the government should, you know, should not be over-regulating these facilities and that, you know, bad facilities will be driven out of business. But clearly they're not. They're clearly still in business. Um, And so I think the issues are are multiple. I think there's been policy making that has deregulated the sector. The regulator itself, the Royal Commission's interim report, called unfit for purpose, um, you know, and you can you can see that in terms of what's been occurring uh, with with preparing facilities for COVID. So I think the average Australian would be absolutely shocked to hear that the way the aged care regulator um, decided to test whether aged care providers in our country were prepared for COVID, it sent them a self assessment survey. They were allowed to self assess whether they were prepared for COVID. It was a survey that said things like, uh, you know, we believe that we have an adequate uh, infection control plan. And 99.5%, that's the precise statistic, of Australian aged care providers rated themselves as satisfactorily prepared or best practice. And only 0.5% of providers said that they weren't actually ready Uh, that that they, you know, could use some improvement. And when we look at the the disaster, the catastrophe that's unfolding in Victoria, it's very clear that those self-assessments in which 99.5% of providers said, yes, we're prepared, were a farcical, irresponsible, negligent way for the regulator to determine whether providers were prepared or not. Had months in which the regulator could have gone to every facility, put into place, uh, you know, serious measures, standardised measures and instead they sent a survey and guess, guess how they followed up the survey. They said if they had any further questions, they would follow it up um, with a robustly structured phone call. Mm-hmm. So it's just shocking when you think about what the regulator should have done and what the government should have done. I mean, what we're seeing in Victoria is the result of progressive deregulation, of the government adopting a kind of hands-off Uh, let the market regulate itself approach that just doesn't work when we're talking about vulnerable citizens who can't advocate for themselves they can't take their business elsewhere so this sort of policy making model that thinks of aged care residents as customers is just crumbling all around us when you see actually how vulnerable they are how few rights they have and so actually when you want if you want to kind of diagnose the origin of the problems that we're seeing here it's a governmental approach to policymaking that, that is a kind of neoliberal free market approach, light on regulation, you know, and kind of it, it skewed in the provider's interest.
0: Yeah, and obviously, you know, those examples of sending a questionnaire to self-regulate oneself oh. really, that's essentially what it is. It doesn't work in pretty much every sector we've seen self-regulation occur, including advertising standards. I wanted to pick up on a couple of things Minister Colbeck, Richard Colbeck, has been under a great deal of scrutiny, and rightly so, and we have seen him appear before a Senate committee. And you tweeted an interesting exchange between himself and Senator Katie Gallagher, and it was quite revealing in the sense of his level of oversight of this system and also his level of engagement with the interim report on the royal commission into aged care and i mm. wanted to to ask about what your takeaway was from that exchange and also what we saw in the senate when he was censured and whether the role that he's played has been adequate and where he's really fell where he hasn't actually performed where potentially an aged care minister should
1: Well, I mean, I think the first time that I just thought, my God, this guy has no idea what he's doing, was actually when the Royal Commission's interim report was released, and that was October the 31st last year, as you mentioned. And the aged care minister, who's entrusted with... Oversight of the sector, leadership of the sector during the royal commission that that his own government had called, you know, so the the government presumably called the royal commission because they were aware that there was endemic understaffing, uh, neglect, you know, issues of physical and chemical restraint, people not receiving adequate care, issues with regulation. The government presumably called the royal commission because it knew there were really entrenched endemic chronic issues that needed addressing, um, and then when the interim, a report came out, Richard Colbeck said he was shocked by it. Now, how on earth the minister responsible could be shocked by an interim report after listening to, you know, the first half of the Royal Commission, presumably following along with it? There was nothing in that report that hadn't been reported in the media. There was nothing in that report that wouldn't have been in his briefing papers because the Royal Commission has been running, uh, you know, as you know, off the back of some 17 other earlier reviews over the last kind of decade. So this is not the first time any of these issues have been canvassed. So that was the first moment where I thought, my God, if the aged care minister is genuinely shocked, you know, by the findings of this interim report, we're in a lot of trouble because that betrays a kind of basic lack of comprehension of this portfolio, a basic awareness of the operating environment in which aged care is is under at present. Um, And then in terms of his response, you know, to the COVID pandemic, like you said, at that Senate committee, um, he was, first of all, he was asked the number of deaths in aged care, and he could not produce that number. He fumbled for a full minute, um, after which one of his staffers, an aide, had to step in and provide the number. And I think that is just a kind of inexcusable oversight. He knew he was going to testify, presumably, for at least a week before he appeared. To appear in front of the Senate Select Committee without that number is just um, indescribably, you know, incompetent. Um, He couldn't say what the current numbers of of infections were either. And then he was asked uh, when he had briefed the Cabinet about the Royal Commission's interim report. And bearing in mind, this hearing happened in um, August of this year. The interim report was handed down on the 31st of October last year. So we're talking about almost a full year... And after lots of, you know, hemming and hawing and and not really being able to answer, he was unable to say whether he had even briefed the Cabinet about the Royal Commission's interim report, which talked about systemic issues of neglect, um, you know, understaffing, all of the issues that we're now seeing playing out. Uh, It's unclear whether the... But he still hasn't answered whether he has ever briefed the Cabinet about the interim report of the Royal Commission. You know, and at that point, where the interim report was talking about widespread endemic mistreatment and neglect of of our most vulnerable senior citizens, you've got to ask what are we paying this guy for? Why is he still in his role? After those disastrous appearances, he also got the number of uh, the number of de- he wasn't he fumbled with the number of deaths again in the Senate. So there's been a couple of times where it's clear that he doesn't even he's not even across the basic numbers, let alone leading a response with any kind of credible, uh, you know, leadership. After that, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, took some of his duties away from him, but has kept him in the role as aged care minister. I mean, at what point? Uh, do we say, you know, the public has clearly lost confidence in him? Surely the sector by now has long lost confidence in this guy. The Prime Minister's taken away his key duties. Uh, I, I literally cannot understand, and I haven't seen one argument, one singular of evidence of anything Richard Colbeck has done as aged care minister in all this time, you know, in the portfolio that's improved the sector for the residents. I, I just, I, I cannot understand how he's still in that role. It, it literally beggars belief.
0: Mm. One of the other issues that I just wanted to finish on, because I think it's something that we do need to grapple with and confront as a society and as a community, is that we've seen some of the aged care facilities i've i've certainly seen responses from them where particularly in rural or regional areas where the, if there is an outbreak some of them have suggested well you can just take your parents home and look after them if you would like while the outbreak is ongoing which seems like a really lacking response because of course mm-hmm. there are some cases where usually it's the women aren't able to do that but also The kind of attitude, societal attitude we seem to have that's so poor and so lacking in basic respect and dignity towards elderly people in Australia, it really has become very apparent, I think, seeing posts from people and see them to say things like, oh, well, they were going to die anyway. Did they really die of coronavirus? Maybe they died with it.
1: Mm. These kind
0: of things undermining the reality of the actual situation and also undermining the humanity of these people who deserve our respect. I just wanted Mm. to ask, you know, have you also noticed or, or has that become more apparent to you? Because it certainly had to me, but it may be anecdotal.
1: It's interesting you ask that because just prior to all of this, I had written a long essay about this very topic. Prior to coronavirus, I'd already been thinking about the way in which aged care residents are dehumanised and, and, and figured in many different ways, you know, as, as no longer being as valuable as citizens who are, you know, economically productive. And and this is a kind of really entrenched idea in our society that once you retire, you're no longer part of the, you know, the the, the workers who contribute to the economy and therefore your life is somehow worth less and it is a profound kind of ageism and we've seen it not just among you know the the sort of shock jock economists who who are kind of trying to make a name for themselves at the moment you know, going on Q&A or writing, you know, opinion pieces, arguing that the economy is worth more than these lives, but also among, you know, our our previous and current prime ministers. So, you know, we saw Tony Abbott saying, you know, perhaps it's better to let nature take its course. The prime minister, Scott Morrison, described aged care residents a couple of weeks ago as pre-palliative. That is not a term. That is not a term that uh, palliative care specialists use. That is an invention of the Prime Minister's. That's not a real medical term. And it's a way of framing aged care residents as somehow already proximate to death, somehow, you know, not quite fully living, not uh, not quite dead yet. You know, and this is not the case. The average, the average duration that someone goes into aged care is for two point six years. That's a long time. That is not pre palliative. That is some, that is the final years of someone's life. And so, in various ways for a long time you know aged care residents and the elderly in general you know have been really devalued in i think in australia in many other countries as well but you know we need to take a really long hard look at ourselves at the way that we value the people who in many instances you know built the prosperity and and the the wonderful quality of life that we enjoy you know the economy that we have um you know we we live in it we live in a tremendously prosperous and lucky country and the people who are now you know being discussed as uh, expendable are the people who built who built that country and mm. you know who contributed to to the quality of life that we all you know younger people enjoy today and I can tell you having spent time not just with my you know my beloved dad but also with other aged care residents in his nursing home when he was living there they have exactly the same emotional depth the fears the pleasures the joys the anxieties that normal people do you know they have full they're in, in you know endowed with the same humanity as you or i and to hear people discuss them as though they're completely expendable and we should just let nature take its course you're talking not not only about someone dying you are also talking about giving them an incredibly distressing and poor quality of death and that is something that's really best, i think in this conversation That People have the right, you know, to die as good a death as we're able to give them. And, you know, my dad died this March. He he had a wonderful death in a hospital, surrounded by family, you know, supported, you know, as much as it was humanly possible with love. And people yeah. who are dying of COVID-19 are dying alone. Their families are incredibly distressed. In many instances in aged care, they're not even told that their parents are dying because the staff are just you know, running around, understaffed, trying to handle, you know, the emergency, you are talking not just about the death of someone, but, of you know, a really isolating, frightening, lonely, you know, and, and painful and, you know, awful kind of death, really. And so I think, I think we must remember that these are people, these are human beings, they have equal human rights as anyone else in our society, and they deserve, a good quality of life in aged care and the best possible palliative care when they are actually dying. Uh, But we don't want to write them off, you know, too soon, like Tony Abbott and some economists and, you know, even the Prime Minister with his pre-palliative comment. I mean, I think that's disgraceful. These are citizens whose lives are worth, you know, are worth living and are worth valuing. Mm.
0: I'm so sorry, Sarah, we're going to have to leave it there, but I do appreciate your time today and your really great voice for people who don't have a voice, really, at the moment, Um, and I hope that uh, things do improve. But thank you so much for your ongoing advocacy on this issue.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: I've been speaking there with Sarah Holland-Batt, an aged care reform advocate and poet based at QUT.